Come, we've lost precious time. He was slinging pawns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And they complained about time too, about not playing the NDE. It was free for all, and I heard him say, he bought my borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable NMs. Hello, hi, it's me, Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, and you're listening to Keep Off The Borderlands. Now, in this episode, I've got a bunch of messages I would like to respond to, an unboxing, well, the opening of an envelope, to be more precise, kind of a sort of film review, and I have a little... Leaf through orbital blues, and uh, yeah, attempt to get my head around the rules. <laughs> Not that it's complicated, and um, that's more criticism of my head than the system itself. Actually, yeah, I realized after I've made the recording looking through orbital blues, it was probably not such a good idea to have the book between me and the microphone. It's surprising how much noise you can make just turning a few pages. I hope that's not too distracting for you. Let's get to those messages. Well, now I'm sitting comfortably. I just want to set the scene for you. Before I launch into responding to those messages, I'm currently sitting in Seton Sands Caravan Park, which is situated in East Lothian, just east of Edinburgh, looking out across the Firth of Forth, and nothing but a very busy road separating me from this idyllic and no doubt once peaceful view. I'm recording this bit a week later than everything else. At one point I talk about missing a game on Saturday. That will be the Saturday before last. So yeah, what can I say? Time flies. So let's dust off these messages. Hey Spencer, love that intro man. You sound like some kind of actor but I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I don't think it's Chris Overton from the Odeon Cinema but uh, loved it man. Just thought I'd pull a Norton and send this message right at the beginning of your last podcast. Great introduction. But get ready, it's about to begin. 
Oh, I've got it, Spencer. It was Mark Strong, wasn't it? That's it. Absolutely nailed it, man. Absolutely perfect. That's who it was. Mark Strong. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant intro. Take me home, country roads. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Safer. Safer there from Safer Fantasy Crafting. Have I said Safer enough? Excellent. Now, uh, yeah, I, it's been a long time since I've been to an Odeon because I was not aware that, um, did you say it's Clive Owen who does it there? Yes, that was indeed me attempting to be Mark Strong who does the announcement for the View Cinema chain, which seems to be the local cinema wherever I seem to go, there's a view. So I'm very familiar with that. Also, I used to work for View Cinema, which, when I first started working there back in the day, was Warner Brothers Cinema. And um, for many years, I enjoyed that piece of music, the Pearl and Dean ads, real intro and outro, just classic stuff. Unfortunately, in more recent years, They've changed changed the music to some strangely dated kind of 90s drum and bass type affair. God knows why. Um, that were Because it's no longer Pearl and Dean who handle the advertising for View. More's the pity. Thank you very much for those messages. I really enjoyed that. Cheers. Hey, Spencer, I find it interesting that character advancement's your least favorite part, or at least the thing you're least interested in, in RPGs, but it's the criticism you gave the Black Hack too quick of character advancement when you called it in as one of your favorite episodes. I just find that interesting. Back to your show. Well, it's the next day already. I told you time flies. And that was a message from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast referring to my call-in to his show about my top three RPGs. I named the Black Hack, but I made a criticism. I felt character advancement happened a little too quickly in the game. Now... I don't think there's anything contradictory there about me finding the advancement a little swift and not being interested in character advancement. I think that they complement each other in a way because um, there's something occurring there because, you know, while um, I was playing the, the black hack, every time you level up, you roll on a carousing table, which means you... Uh, based on that result, you add an element to your character. And I, I just felt that too much was being added to my characters. Um, I feel that that supports my lack of interest in character advancement. And when I say character advancement, I mean that in the traditional levelling up sense. I'm, I'm very interested in characters evolving but not necessarily increasing in power 
I hope that makes sense. And reflecting on my criticism of the black hack, I'm not sure, in fact, it's that fair a criticism because I played quite a long game. I had three characters in total in that campaign that Dave Aldridge was running. And um, two of those characters made it to level seven. I mean, the campaign came to an end around that point and my my characters were sort of in a way ready for retirement and while I feel I could have done more with those characters they'd kind of outgrown the activities that the 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 party were involved in in the campaign certainly Brap Crudman who had gone through this transformation and have had this sort of spiritual rebirth as uh, Laz Newman, who kind of be- had become this kind of grotesque, avenging angel character. I've spoken all about that before. Most certainly would have been interesting to see what he got up to next, but it wouldn't have fitted in with what the rest of the party were doing in that troop play West Marches campaign. Um, I do feel that perhaps that was an unfair criticism of the Black Hack because things seem to work out quite nicely overall and uh, a very satisfying campaign it was too. During your Lone Eons character creation, I kind of got flashbacks to a certain movie and was wondering if the characters were going to or your character is going to wander out away from the village and find themselves on a Pennsylvania highway somewhere. Okay, back to the show. Jason is referring to the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village There, which I didn't actually have in mind during that character creation. Uh, To be honest, I'm not uh really a fan of that film it's got a good atmosphere to it but the well the reveal is not much of a reveal is it it's far too there's far too much telegraphing if you ask me for that twist to be a twist my interest in Shyamalan's work wanes quite drastically after Unbreakable I love the sixth sense I love Unbreakable. But my interest towels off quite dramatically after that. And, uh, well, the the setting for uh, Lost Eons is the West Midlands of England. So I would have probably come up against the the M1 or the A1. I'm not sure uh, whether it's the M1 or A1 at that point. I imagine they'd emerged somewhere around, I don't know, Kettering Way or something like that. I don't know, I haven't looked at I haven't looked at a map of that area in a while. I've really enjoyed these past couple episodes. The hopefully the vaccine is working and you know that this is the worst effect you're gonna get from COVID. Sorry you've you're having to deal with that, but hopefully you make a great recovery and take care of yourself. Look forward to talking to you soon. 
Thank you very much, Jason. Yeah, it seemed the vaccine uh, did the trick. I actually, before I came down with COVID, uh, I, I was uh, one of the last members of the family to actually contract it because I had an awful cold leading up to it. And it wasn't until that cold cleared up that I tested positive. And then following COVID, I got, I got, I got another cold again. And to be honest, <laughs> The COVID felt like a bit of a break. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to make light of uh, of how it affected a lot of people, but um, yes, I didn't suffer too severely there. Uh, I think, as far as you know, once I the the infection had passed, I think maybe, perhaps, uh, me and those around me have been feeling a bit sluggish in you know the subsequent weeks but uh i think we'll we'll shake that off but thank you very much jason cheers thanks for your calls hi spencer goblin henchman here so just listen to your uh, long episode uh i'll be feeling that sound makes it sound bad doesn't it <laughs> your interesting episode with all the call-ins uh sorry about either you got the old covid the dreaded covid but Hopefully, like me, your inoculations will uh, see you through, and it won't be so bad. Um, as for your, um, you know, the the plot line you were discussing about, you know, being an S outsider to leave and all that sort of stuff, is, isn't that the is that is that the plot from Moana? Have you just recreated the Disney epic? <laughs> to be honest, I need to go back and listen to it because I think there was something about living underground. I'm not sure the Moana they live underground, but. Um, and there is a plague in that, thinking about it, that's spreading from island to island. Anyway, OK, cheers, Philip. Bye. Thank you, Goblin's Henchman. And that's, that's an interesting observation, because uh, Moana is something that is on quite often at home. I've seen it more than a few times with the kids. Uh, my daughter's a, certainly a fan of that movie. Yeah, and there there is... I know they, they don't live underground, but there's certainly a sequence in there where Moana discovers the 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 ships the 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 boats that they use to reach the island and that's all within uh, a cave so uh, and and she uncovers the yeah the history of uh, people coming to the island so yeah there's something there and i think there's there's a bit of cave painting in that sequence as far as the disease sweeping across the islands I, perhaps i haven't been paying as much attention as i claim to because uh i, I i'm gonna have to go and watch it again because uh, i'm not sure that i picked up on that detail but um no no doubt it'll be put on again sometime in the near future and uh, uh can refresh my memory anyway thanks for your call, Goblin's Henchman, always great to hear from you. Take care. Hi, right, Spence. <laughs> what are we like? I don't know who's worse. Anyway, <laughs> Cody. Cody M is the No Safe For You podcast. And, yeah, <laughs> Hoxton Street. Now, the context for that was it's like um, it's an indie film, like documentary film with loads of real-life characters that in the context of RPGs, that's what I was banging on about, um, rich, interesting folks that you can draw upon to add into your game. Um, 
I was so sure it made sense at the time, but listening back, yeah, that was an epic fail. Ah, you'd have thought after all this time I'd have got a little bit better at this stuff. Anyway, I hope you're feeling better soon, mate, and uh, take care. I'll catch you later. Well, thank you, Colin. Colin Green there of Spike Pit fame. I was not aware of that documentary, and I will certainly seek it out. It sounds like uh, like it's well worth a watch. I think it's I think it's called The Street. And thanks for reminding me of the name of Cody M's podcast. I did twig after the recording and meant to add reference to it into the episode before publishing, but you know where it is with these things. Very easy to forget what you have and haven't referred to when using Anchor. But yes, talking of Cody M, and no save for you. Hey, Spencer, it's Cody. I was uh, sorry to hear you got the COVIDs, man. Um, as for the woolly head, I think you just get some uh, sheep shears in it. Cut that right off. Anyway, hope you feel better, bud. Bye. Hey, Spencer, I uh, heard you got a little tongue twisted in your last episode there with the make it make sense. I think it should have been since it make make. Since it make make. Well, uh, yes, yeah, certainly does that sense make. Thank you, Cody. <laughs> All right there, Spencer, it's John here from the Red Dice Diaries. Sorry to hear you're ill at the moment, dude, but I'm glad it's not too serious and you seem to be on the mend. I'm just listening to your latest episode. Uh, I've only really got a little bit of the way in. It's Colin's uh, calling where he's talking about regional accents. And yeah, I've got to admit, although I know, obviously, I know the, the sort of snobbery about regional accents certainly in the UK exists. I've always found that a little bit weird because, like, I always think, accents are like a fun thing you know like someone sounds different i don't know whether it's because i gem so much that you know i'm always trying to do like different accents and slightly different voices man pcs but i always think like different accents sound cool as colin will know from like when i've sort of mentioned his accent in my osc game that he used to play in so yeah it's a weird one but yeah let's let's keep those accents going I, to be honest i don't even know if i've got one myself i suppose you don't but there you go that's my ramble done keep up the good work dude Catch you soon. Thank you very much, John. John Allen Large there. And uh, yes, yeah, I haven't got an accent at all, John. Well, actually, I'm trying and failing to do your accent, but I've clearly gone far too north. Anyway, I'm going to stop this now because it's probably quite insulting. Thanks very much for your call, John Allen Large there from Red Dice Diaries, RDD RPG. And I think you've got a little more to say. Hey Spencer, John again, just for listening to your latest episode still, and I'm so pleased to hear you mention Pontypool, as you say, not strictly folk horror, but it is one of my all-time favourite films. For a film that has fairly few locations and a fairly small collection of actors who all do a great job, but there's only a few of them in the film, it really does an amazing job of sort of 
giving you this idea that a sort of broader scenario is playing out in the world at large and you get to sort of feel these the isolation of these people that are sort of trapped in the radio station knowing there's nothing they can really do but sort of seeing how they react to it and how it eventually intrudes on their sanctum so to speak great episode dude keep up the good work stay safe i'll catch you soon Thank you for that message, John. I Yes, I really enjoyed Ponty Paul. I'm a big fan of films with limited number of characters, kind of a restricted location. Clearly, a lot of that is about budgetary restraints because it's, it's quite an indie film. But I think, yes, I think that leads to a lot of inventiveness. Certainly restricting a lot of the horrific events to being solely audio really triggers the imagination. And uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've, got, I've got a very interesting history with horror. I may have spoken about this before, but I, I was quite... And let's say I had quite a vivid imagination when I was a kid and found the idea of watching horror films far more disturbing than the act of actually watching them. Um, although there were certainly some films that traumatised me as a, a kid, Jaws being one of them, um, Alien, I think I saw uh, far too young an age, and um, American Werewolf in London, that transformation scene, you know, the fact that it was a comedy didn't really um, soften <laughs> the impact of that particular sequence. Uh, I, I think I must have been probably been about 11 when I saw that. And uh, yes, although I was fascinated with horror, I was quite often too scared to watch anything but what i would do was go to the local video store and leaf through the uh, it was one of those small stores where they had all the tapes out the back and the library was basically a bunch of ring binders with all the uh, the covers for the videos in the ring binder and you'd leaf through uh, to select what movie you wanted and I used to love going through the horror films looking at all the images on the video covers I was extremely fascinated by that uh, which would give films a kind of almost mythical existence in my own mind you know and when I subsequently plucked up the courage to get round and watch most of those films they turned out to be pretty awful, quite a lot of them. But uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. And uh, I realise um, I've taken your message there and gone off on a complete tangent. But uh, I hope you don't mind. Thanks again for your message, John. Cheers. I've got a little envelope here to open if you'll indulge me. Um, it's a little bit battered. Looks like it's been through the mill, but it's posted in Edinburgh, so it's only travelled 
140 miles potentially um, let's see like the edges are frayed and the corners are dinked but I think the the contents looks as if it's survived surprisingly well certainly not been bent up at all which I'm thankful for ah, here we go compliance defiance escape what is this ah be seeing you play summary oh this is nice it's all on cards it's like fold out a5 cards say a5 a4 once you open it up folded into pamphlets i guess you'd call it this is nicely presented so yeah be seeing you this is a kickstarter i backed solo play aid versus play aid um on some cards here some sort of x card play aids administrator play aids resident play aid the prisoner the village now this is a game based on the 60s tv show starring patrick I say Patrick Stewart, it's not Patrick Stewart, it's not Patrick Moa, it's Patrick McGowan, and um, he plays a, a government agent who tries to resign from his post and then kind of finds himself waking up in this rather sur surreal place, this village, uh, which is actually Port Merion in Wales, and what's curious about that is Port Merion is, is a village uh, built by an Italian architect and it looks decidedly un-Welsh and uh, it's a really, really curious place that has a, almost um, like a theme park feel to it, like everything about it is artificial. Anyway, I digress. He wakes up in his village, essentially spends most of his time trying to escape, trying to figure out what's going on. While he's kind of surveyed by a closed circuit television, he's assigned a number, number six, and he only knows other individuals by their number. And it's a very, very curious show indeed um, that I haven't seen in years, but I'd have to, I'd have to go back and give it a look. But this game is based um, largely on that TV show, uh, sort of picks up on the closed circuit television aspect be seeing you a role-playing game about independence control freedom and compliance by tanya floker and um this is just really nicely put together a little book it's a, a a zine 80 page zine so quite substantial very colorful and clear design let's have a look in the back Freedom dies with security. Motto, cam over. Who controls the past controls the present, and who controls the present controls the future. Memory War by Asian Dub Foundation. Now, if a game's got a quote from Asian Dub Foundation on it, it's certainly worth taking a look. Warning, 
Unmutual activity prohibited. This role-playing game contains dangerous levels of dystopian science fiction, social allegory and psychological drama. Three to five prisoners, four to six hours, no dice, no masters. Oh, it's a GMless game, which I was probably aware of when backing it. But, um, yeah, nice book. Nice, I like the, the fold-out, the little play aids and the fold-out instruction pamphlets. Very nice indeed. In the last episode, I received a message from Jason Connolly of Nerds RPG Variety Cast inquiring as to whether I thought that Wolfen, a film from 1981 starring Albert Finney, qualified as Urban Weird. Now, the reason he was asking that was because in the episode before that, I um, opened a package that contained a couple of books that I received from Weird Harvest Press, created by the Folk Horror Revival website. And these two books focused on urban weird. And uh, I did a little reading, kind of describing, well, I guess it was more describing what urban weird wasn't, rather than what it was, because it's seems it's quite a nebulous category. But it turns out Jason was right on the money because the film itself is actually featured in the book. Um, there's uh, a little piece written about it. Now, the piece uh, is entitled All for the Hunting Ground, Wolfen, by S.J. Lyle. Now, I'm not going to read the whole piece, just this last uh, second to last paragraph. Based on a novel by Wyatley Schreiber, who would later find fame with communion, his account of interactions with apparent alien beings, Wolfen represents the city as an environment as hostile as the deep forest, with neglected corners which are as isolated from society as any in the wilderness, where unfortunates can be picked off by fierce creatures with no one being any the wiser. In these decaying streets, humans are no longer the top of the food chain, being usurped by these intelligent, telepathic pack animals. Um, now, I, I took it upon myself to watch Wolfen, primarily because, uh, well, it was starring Albert Finney. He's an actor I, I, I like particularly. Um, I didn't realise it also has uh, Gregory Hines in it, who's somebody I could watch doing absolutely anything. He he hasn't appeared in enough films, as far as I'm concerned. Um, extremely charismatic actor. Uh, and this film, well, actually, I won't say the film's great. In fact, I can categorically say it's not great. But it is interesting. Um, one of the problems of the film, the, the main problem really, is that it 
throws so many different ideas at you. It doesn't really explore any of them with any real depth. Some of the particularly interesting threads are related to the urban decay, urban renewal, and comments on capitalism and, well, colonialism, essentially. And I guess the the human desire to tame the wilderness and that coming back to bite you in the arse. There, I mean, there's a lot of other threads about um, terrorist activists and um, these strange sections where you see uh, individuals being interviewed and they're being monitored from this strange kind of low-lit room where the you know the temperature of the room and the cadence of the voice and these these heat-sensitive cameras are all being used to deduce whether the interviewee is lying or not. And they, these scenes in particular seem to be completely detached from everything else going on in the film. It's almost like it's going on in another universe. But the use of New York as a location, um, a lot of the filming takes place in the South Bronx at the beginning of the 80s. It, it was an area known for tenements, slums, essentially, that were being torn down. And this this whole area is a bizarre wasteland with just the odd kind of shell of a building dotted around. And some action takes place around an abandoned church. And, and all this stuff that takes place in that area is particularly particularly interesting and I I feel that yeah all these other elements these sort of red herrings seem to detract from these other interesting elements that are not explored nearly enough I can't help feeling there's a version of this film on the cutting room floor that was much more engaging than what we end up with this is interesting stuff related to the uh, in, indigenous Americans who are living within the city, kind of on the fringes of society in a way, but working in construction, but very much seem to be existing on the fringes of society. And, and one of these individuals is someone that the detective was uh, instrumental in putting behind bars some years ago. And um, he tracks down this figure and they have some interesting interactions and uh, where, where the, the guy played by Edward James almost, it's one interaction where we uh, almost see Edward James. But uh, enough of that. Um... <laughs> And he, he talks about the city being the new wilderness and the the hunting ground for these wolfen who are basically picking off the weaker members of society. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting and frustrating film. There is a, it does have a dreamlike quality to it, some of which I feel it's unintentional because it's so kind of cobbled together in a way um 
there's some really interesting use of uh, this sort of uh, Wolfen eye view, which is um, like a sort of a higher contrast image where we're seeing, uh, you know, through the eyes of the predator as it's pursuing individuals. And um, it's, it's certainly effective the first few times you see it, but it seems to be far too overused throughout the film and it doesn't always look great as an effect. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it had some influence on the way the Predator was filmed, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, where you get that thermal imagery. And in fact, that thermal imagery is used in the lie detecting scenes. So, um, yeah, and this was quite cutting edge stuff at the time. I mean, the, the camera effect. Yeah, so, yeah, an odd odd film that kind of doesn't know what it is. It's sort of procedural investigation. It presents itself like a sort of a slasher movie, which I think does the material a disservice. Yeah, but certainly, certainly an interesting watch. I, I felt it kind of fell down towards the end where things... Get yeah, very strange indeed, but the conclusion is far from satisfying. There's some great effects around kind of twitching bits of dismembered people, if you're into that sort of thing. But um, yeah, yeah, an interesting experience. And um, yeah, really glad that I watched it. So thanks for bringing that to my attention, Jason. Cheers. Um, I bailed on a game tonight, a Saturday night, and I should be playing Call of Cthulhu with Andy Goodman, Barney Dicker of Loco Ludus, Scott Dorwood of, of the good friends of Jackson Elias, TJ Drennan, the legendary Melodious Miasma Meltdown. And I think he has something to do with I'm right, you're welcome. <laughs> but you know, that's just between us. And Nikki Halter of Infiltrating the Bro SR podcast. And uh, yes, yeah, I should be playing in a session with them this evening. Right now, in fact, for Grizzly Peaks Radio, back to the uh, White Dwarf Sessions, as old Milton Blythe. And, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's, uh, I had to take a rain check. It's been crazy here today, and it was just not uh, appropriate, shall we say, for me to disappear and play a game for two hours. Ironically, I could have really done with playing in a game tonight just to kind of escape the craziness. Um, and, um, well, to double down on the irony there, yes, uh, 
<laughs> my desire is to play Call of Cthulhu so I can escape the madness. That's right. Yes, yeah, so uh, I, I feel pretty bad about letting them down. Um, fortunately, they have been able to play. It's the first uh, proper session of a new campaign. And I guess Milton will just have to be busy doing something else for that first couple of hours. Um, yeah, it's just a real shame and uh, apologies to everyone involved. Yeah. Following a call from Cody M of No Save For You, he requested... Um, well, he inquired as to whether I was going to take a look at Orbital Blues. So I thought I would. Now, first of all, I have to say it's a rather lovely book. Kind of, um, what's this, A5, a little larger maybe. And um, first thing you notice about the cover is it's got like um, a collage using photographs and what we've got is a motel sign on a roadside uh, welcome travelers orbital blues vacancy motel cafe with the e missing credits a space western rpg and you've got a, a, a kind of moon looking planet in the background and a blue sky uh, the spine is a nice orange colour with big white lettering orbital blues the inside of the covers have a couple of tables here for generating um, frontier galaxy is a vast place with myriad cities stations hubs and ports what follows are a series of tables to quickly generate names and basic information that interstellar outlaws might find useful for their adventures. Then we have a Slaney, Clark and Cox Orbital Blues role playing for sad space cowboys. Now, the, the tone of this thing is very interesting. Cody suggested it might be good for Cowboy Bebop, which I'm aware has a great jazz soundtrack. And and if I'm not mistaken, there's kind of a 70s cop vibe to the show, to the, to the anime at least, as far as I'm aware. This is a little bit different. This is, um, it describes itself as lo-fi space roleplay. And it's also a space western. There's there's that kind of lonesome cowboy tone to it, but it's also like um a rather eclectic aesthetic to the book. As I say, the the collage of the cover kind of continues throughout the book. I've got um page here looks like um. An advert for a diner called Jackson's, brought to you by Soul Muppet Publishing. And then you've got the website, 
Sam Slaney and Zachary Cox are the writers. Um, Jared Sinclair did the editing. Josh Clark, art, lone archivist, layout. Josh Clark and lone archivist, maps. And then you've got the contents page. And the contents page looks like kind of 50s diner menu. Uh, we've got character creation section, uh, playing the game, running the game, and Salter system. I think the Salter system is the setting. All bit of blues. This is the rock and roll future of yesteryear that never was and nobody wanted. It is an intergalactic age of cowboys, outlaws, and bandits playing on an interstellar stage. It is a time of hyper-capitalism and cutthroat gig economy. Unreliable trash heaps carry scrappy underdogs to their next gig and corporation fighters lumber across the horizon laden with an empire's bounty. The back streets of every terraformed metropolis brim with a thousand lonely hearts and a thousand more venal vendettas the burnt-out wastelands between bright light and lawless bat country, anachronistic Americana languishing beneath multiple moons, madness in every direction at every solar hour. These are the music-fueled moon-age daydreams of a rebel space age. These are your orbital blues. I think that conjures up the feel quite nicely there is a sort of a noir element to it that is what drew me to it i thought that's that's what i felt was quite different about it there is a emphasis on mental health in fact there's a bit of the back about that that i might just jump to actually looking at the back cover here the galaxy is a lawless expanse and you are an interstellar outlaw together with your ship and your crew you must eke out a living in the frontier and chase down the intergalactic dream of freedom and success a love letter to offbeat sci-fi vintage music and cooperative storytelling orbital blues is all you need to play out tabletop adventures in the style of space westerns such as Cowboy Bebop, Firefly, Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, there you go. And it does have that kind of... It's got that Guardians of the Galaxy feel in the sense that... Um, not in the sense that you're all kind of bizarre aliens, although I'm sure that's possible. Uh, it does seem rather sort of human-centric... Uh, in a kind of Star Wars-y way. Although, you know, obviously you've got, your, got a wide variety of aliens to choose from in that universe. But it, it's got that Guardians of the Galaxy thing in the sense that all the characters have traumatic backstories, you know. And um, the mechanisms of the game play into that. Um, Jason was actually asking me about this because uh, I think he got it slightly confused with those dark places that I was talking about 
um, a much simpler system, a bit more kind of pick up and play, primarily for one shots. I think that's, that's the thinking behind it. Now, um, Jason did ask me if this this had a similar system to Best Left Buried, which it does. Um, Best Left Buried was written by Zachary Cox and Nicholas Spence, whereas this is written by um, Zachary Cox with Sam uh, Slaney. I think I'm saying that right. S-L-E-N-E-Y. They certainly share the same system, they appear to. Um, right, so it goes into, there's a bit of a content warning just with the, this. Um, this book is intended for mature audiences and discusses topics and themes which may be uncomfortable for some readers, including anxiety, death, depression, gambling, mental illness, and traumas, poverty, smoking, substance abuse, and violence. Um, there's a bit more about the background, but I'm going to turn the page and go on to character creation. Talks a little bit about coming up with a concept initially. Then we've got a list of a uh, hundred random names. D100 table. Uh, stats are, or the core stats are muscle, grit and savvy. So muscle, strengthen your arms and bulk under your jacket. Grit is your ability to never give up and never give in. It is the tenacity to chase the intergalactic dream and the will to watch one's friends come and go with the passing of the years. And you've got savvy. Savvy is the speed of your arm, the pull of your trigger finger. It is the speed of the cat and the wit of the joker. Savvy represents attributes based around both physical and mental agility. So that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have initially thought that it was physical agility. But um, yeah, I get what they're going for there. And... You distribute points to those stats. Your highest stat is plus two, plus one, and then zero. And that, uh, when you perform checks, you are rolling 2d6 plus your stat bonus. And the idea is getting eight or above. There's sort of a... Um, advantage disadvantage uh, called um, upper hand or against the odds so uh, in both those cases you add another d6 so you're only 3d6 with upper hand you're dropping the lowest with against the odds you're dropping the highest and um, they don't stack they can cancel each other out but you can't have more than one upper hand or more than one against the odds so you're only ever rolling a maximum of three dice and taking two of the results i think observation checks are the same as any other check except i don't believe you have the upper hand 
against the odds element involved in that. I'm not sure why they're handled slightly differently, but but there you go. Your character has these other two elements to their character, which is heart and blues. Heart is your ability to get hit and keep going. So like hit points, I guess. Um, blues are a loose measure of your character's past sins, personal grievances and guilty hang-ups and an indicator of growth and experience. You gain blues from troubles. So, as I understand it, troubles are almost like um, milestones, but it's in the form of... Oh, well, actually, it's got a description of troubles here. Troubles are a summation of the character's past misgivings, misdeeds, vice and regrets. They fuel the individual and the group narratives and sometimes provide a source of blues. Characters begin play with one trouble and can gain new troubles at the end of a troubles brewing scene or by knocking on heaven's door. These may also gain... They may also gain troubles at the storytellers the storytellers discretion in play from events action and behavior so yeah um it sounds like they're kind of a combination of milestones or elements of the background that your character can engage in there are lists of troubles further on in the book um, and you've also got gambits. Gambits are talents, tricks and reliable assets that characters call upon to get jobs done. They reflect the character's past, ties or abilities. Characters gain gambits through play or pay for them with troubles. New characters start with one gambit. For every two troubles a character gains they take a new gambit. So, I feel like there's kind of one step too many in there somehow, but um, I hope that's something that makes sense in play that I'm struggling to kind of piece together in my head right now. Best serve cold. Right, let's have a look at this. Troubles expanded. So I guess this is just a deeper explanation of what troubles are. Whenever you answer one of these questions during play, gain one blues. Right, that makes a bit more sense. Right, you gain blues from troubles. Right, I see. So troubles fuel individual and group narrative sometimes provide a source of blues right yeah that makes sense so i cheated literally i got a cheat sheet and um i don't know i wouldn't take this as a criticism of how things are presented in the book because i do struggle with this kind of stuff and i'm much happier seeing things presented in the form of a formula rather than you know through prose um, 
So let's just quickly run through this. Muscle, fitness, strength, uh, right, three stats. Muscle is fitness, strength, bulk. Grit is determination, tenacity, and will. And savvy is speed, smarts, and charisma. So, uh, changes to stats. PCs can increase one stat by using the troubles brewing mechanic. Can't go above plus three. Hearts. Hearts are clearly hit points, health points. Hearts. Heart. Stop saying hearts. <laughs> it's heart. I'm saying hearts because I'm thinking of index card RPG. But um, yeah, heart is, is clearly an alternative to hit points. Heart is a plus muscle at character gen at zero heart roll 1d6 if the result is equal to or less than troubles the PC dies if it's greater than the number of troubles the PC is knocking on heaven's door and regains consciousness in 2d6 hours blues now these are clearly the mental health points get real sad PCs have between zero and eight blues now I'm assuming this is similar to best left buried but that is very clearly tied to fear whereas this seems to be much broader it's about anything upsetting uh, traumatic uh, relating to your past or you know connections between what's going on in the present and your past so PCs have between 0 and 8 blues gain blues from troubles or through gameplay just get real sad right so um, it's funny I've noticed the use of this word sad cropping up in different systems I've been looking at different games that have come up on itch the use of this word sad as a description of the tone of a, a game and um yeah I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that calling my game sad I, I get what they're going for they're going for sort of you know melancholy uh, uh but that's probably something i'll i'll come round to in time but at the moment it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb i digress when a PC reaches eight blues, they gain a new trouble and reset their blues to zero. Right, so you you gain blues from interacting with your troubles and through gameplay. So the troubles are, I guess, another way of describing them would be like um, Banes in... Uh, Savage Worlds I don't know why I'm using Savage Worlds as an example because I don't really know the system but you, you're rewarded blues for engaging in detrimental activity I guess and then you've got gambits so gambits are tricks and talents so I think that's pretty self-explanatory essentially special skills that you gain gain a new gambit through troubles brewing 
or for every two troubles. So you can cash in your troubles to gain gambits. But obviously you don't want to have too few troubles because that comes into play when you're reduced to zero health. So that kind of, that makes sense to me. That's making sense now. So here's a description of troubles. All the ways a PC's life has gone wrong. Gained through troubles brewing or knocking on heaven's door or at the storyteller's discretion. I kind of get what it's getting at there, although I'm not really sure I understand what troubles brewing and knocking on heaven's door is yet. Troubles will be the primary mechanical way a PC's personality will interact with the world at large by answering their troubles questions or encountering trouble triggers. Lean into this. And then, you know, it refers back to the book and the list of troubles in there that you've got to choose from. Blues checks. Measure of Stress, turmoil, often relates to troubles, but anything sad will do. Um, roll plus grit. On an eight or more, gain one blues. On seven or less, gain nothing. Troubles brewing. Oh, here we go. Costs eight blues. PCs declare troubles brewing. The PC confronts the source of their troubles for the rest of the scene. Spend blues instead of hearts for exertion. Take half damage. At the end of the scene, reset blues to zero. Gain a new trouble and gambit if you have enough troubles. Restore all hearts. Increase a stat by one. So I guess that's the equivalent of levelling up in this game. So I, th I think I've grasped that. Like I've said before though... I can be very confused by these things written down, but when it comes to playing, when it comes to, um, you know, interacting with the stuff at the table, quite often it all clicks together and things that appear to be complicated turn out to be quite straightforward in play. And this is by no means a complicated game. I mean, the book is, the book is about, it's about 200 pages long. But the rules are very simple. Most of that is random tables and um, art. It's very much an art book in the same way. Morkbog is an art book. Very different aesthetic. It's very clearly laid out and easy to read. Um, but there's lots of art in it and it's an eclectic nature to the the way things are laid out and, and uh, you know a variety of fonts used but not uh, to this sort of um, splatterpunk degree of the Morkborg books uh, it's, it, it's not splatterpunk is it but you know what I mean that but metal this is, uh, well, it's a little bit country, it's a little bit rock and roll. Uh, and that's, that's another thing that's quite interesting. Lots of talk about it being a space western, 
but it very much goes for like um like a 50s americana kind of feel to it something quite sort of uh, i get it gives me a sort of a badlands vibe you know the uh, the 70s movie terence malick vibe it really is a nice looking pop there we go Well, that's about enough from me, I think. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for your calls. If you want to leave me a message, please contact me via the anchor link in the description. You can always email me or leave me an audio message at spencer.freeforall at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page for Keep Off the Borderlands. You can find me on Twitter and MeWe on the Audio Dungeon Discord and various other places on Discord as Free Thrall. I'd also like to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful music he provides. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ. Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.